Hi, and welcome to part two of Andy Phillips' Invested Investor podcast. In part one, Andy talked us through how he founded Active Hotels, grew it to a hugely successful online hotel marketplace, and then sold it for it to become what it is today, Booking.com. Part two is all about what he did after that sale. He'll be discussing his involvement in another of his ventures, Top Table, and then his transition into angel investing. Excitingly, he will include his top tips to entrepreneurs and angel investors, including the advice that new angels should never assume you're above average when you start. You will not be. So that happened. And then I was working with a lady called Karen Hansen, who was the founder of Top Table. She had a very similar culture. She'd grown it largely from cash flow to be, and it's an online restaurant booking mm-hmm. business, which is very, very similar dynamics actually to the hotel industry. I used to frustrate her a lot by always referring to restaurants as hotels by mistake. <laughs> and so myself and Matthew Witt, who's the ops director at Active, joined that board and we helped, I hope, to try and structure that business and help accelerate its growth. And that grew to being the largest online restaurant booking company in Europe before we sold it to Open Table, which now actually is owned by Priceline. So, <laughs> so how long were you still at Priceline? A couple of years after the I, I sat on the board, I think, in 2006. Okay, and then you went, and you'd already on Top Table at that point. Yes. And how long were you, did you stay with Top Table then? Stayed with Top Table, we sold in 2010, so for five years or... But you were so. non-exec. Yeah, so I was, I was non-exec. I wasn't exec, exec in the, right. the team. And I found that quite a difficult dynamic at times because I'd been used to being chief exec. Mm. And I was I didn't like to think of myself as a dictatorial chief exec, but I was used to making decisions here. And suddenly that dynamic of being chairman rather than chief exec is very, very different. You're trying to make sure the chief exec has heard what you're saying, but then it's ultimately up to them to make the decisions. Now, Karen is quite a strong character and didn't have a problem resisting when she disagreed with me and you normally made the right decisions anyway so she was a very easy person to be introduction to but it, i did struggle with that right. transition for a while and slightly in parallel to that i'd also co-founded a company called review with a friend richard anson and two people from active review that's r-e-v-o-o is it r-w-e-v-o-o oh, yes. which was we thought was sort of trendy and googly at the yeah. time and review it's a play on the word review is it yeah yeah yeah, so it collects user-generated content from big brands. Now, it didn't do that when it started, actually, but that, that's what it's pivoted to do. Okay, so you're sort of starting to go plural this at yes. this point. And where does angel investing come into this? Angel investing, I drifted into it. I'd love to give you an argument that all my career decisions have been thought through. But actually, you know, the criteria for an entrepreneur when they're looking for an angel investor is they want someone with operational experience or knowledge of their marketplace but most critically they want somebody who's got money and it was obvious that I had money and so you start getting approached I don't want to suggest it's entirely altruistic you're obviously looking for a return but there's quite a big element of altruism from quite a lot of angel investors that if you're going to make an investment that's yield return you're far better off putting it in property historically and just Mm. sitting back and ignoring it Mm. so the motivation for angel investing is partly to stay involved and current with the scene but also partly to give something back and my angel investors and my board have given me massive amounts of advice and support you know, when you, know, you could argue it was irrational to do so. And I did feel, and still do feel, actually, that you know, it's now your, once you've, you know, in inverted commas, made it, there is a responsibility to give something back to the ecosystem as well. So, well done. What a statement to make. Thank you. Right. You haven't said that before. That's right. Excellent. <laughs> So when did the angel investing start then? In 2009, 2008? Uh, no, I, probably from 2005, 2006. Okay. So I put some money into Reboot very early on, which I can argue at least was an angel investment. And actually the best piece of advice I got given back then, I got lots of advice actually. And one of my tips for other angels is to go and talk to lots of angels before you start because you can get some really valuable advice. 
John Bates gave me some brilliant yeah, advice. Yeah, John, yeah, yeah. Um, John, John works at London Business School and he was saying, if you are going to do an angel investing, then start slowly because I can promise you you're not as good as you think you are. But, <laughs> and, and he was absolutely right. My first couple of angel investments were disasters largely. So he helped me not to lose too much money. money. I think his statement is excessively angel investing is not losing all your money in the first couple of years. And I, that advice certainly weighed quite heavily on me. And then Simon Murdoch was also pretty instrumental. So he, he's at episode one now. Yes. Sure you know yeah, I do know. Yeah. And he he won't remember, but he, I remember talking to him at the beginning and he was saying, if you are going to do angel investing, then make sure you make at least 10 investments because they fail for all kinds of reasons that you can't predict. Yeah, and you need the numbers to start working with you. So again, he set me off on a route that made a lot of sense or makes a lot of sense in retrospect. At the time, I took it slightly on faith from him. How were you sorting your deals then in the early days? Most of them were from marketplaces. So because I'd sold the marketplace and booking.com, it became quite high profile over that time period. You know, people were beginning to approach me because they, they knew I was involved. And then I, I'm trying to remember when I joined Cambridge Angels, probably about 2007, eight. Somewhere. I don't know, before yeah. me, I think, yeah. yeah. So... I also got some deal flow by Cambridge. And London Business School. And E100. And then I was teaching at NCI as well. So I got quite a lot of deals from the business school community, which has been a blessing and a curse because I was teaching at NCI and LBS. At the time, I, I was explaining what I was looking for, or what I thought made a good business opportunity. And then because they know exactly what I'm looking for, the pitch always looks brilliant. As yes. far as I'm <laughs> directed straight at And so actually selecting which ones are actually genuinely brilliant was quite hard. Yes. So some of my best investments and some of my worst investments have both been from business schools. How many investments do you think you've made over the last 12, 13 years? It's over 40 now. So I probably average three or four a year, somewhere around that. And how many have failed completely so far? That's seven. And then I've got quite a few living dead as well. Yes. But, um, And how many exits? I've had six or seven exits, but out of that, and this goes back to Simon Murdoch's point, without three exits, my portfolio would be in quite a lot of trouble. Yes. So I've I've had three reasonably good exits there, including Top Table, Perk Box, which is only partial exit actually, and Zoopla. But a couple of those are over 30 times there, and that covers up a lot of for want of a better word, screw-ups along the way. Yeah, and I don't think I'm particularly bad at it, he said slightly defensively, but you know, most of the analysis seems to show that the best returns for angel investing rely on that 10 to 5% that really makes stellar returns, and the rest of the portfolio is pretty average. Yes. Yeah, and I'm certainly in that circumstance. Have you had cash-on-cash cash positive yet? Yes. Yeah, well done. Okay. Yes. And you've still got about whatever the number is, probably 10 or 15 that you think will succeed to some extent? I've probably got 15 that I realise some value from. So I think I've got just over 20% IRRR, but I either have the business written at cost or if I've been offered something, I know not not necessarily taking it, but if I've been offered liquidity, I write it up to that. But the rest of the time, I either keep it at cost or if it's gone bust, obviously I write it off. Yes, okay. So I'm not sure that's a recognised valuation methodology, but it's what I use. (laughs) Well, I I use the BBC one, which is very similar. And I'll write down if necessary. I'll write down subjectively and objectively. You add a huge value. You've been entrepreneurial. You're unbelievably well-connected. You're, as we joked earlier on, you're very self-deprecating, but you're actually... You're such a nice man, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) So how have you helped and have you hindered on these journeys? I think I've hindered certainly early on because of that transition from being chief exec to being an advisor. One of the things we, well, we did many things wrong in, in Acts, but one of the things we did right is that we normally made decisions quite fast. Yeah, and if those decisions were wrong, we then went back and changed them or 
tried to bluff that they were actually the right decision in the first place. And in that circumstances, I had probably the maximum amount of data there that I obviously didn't know everything, but I was pretty intimately involved in the business. The challenge when you're non-exec is your access to information is very filtered. It's coming by the chief exec. You can spend some time in the business, but you're viewed with some suspicion. So your access to data isn't as good. And yet you may still have a mindset that you need to make decisions very, very fast. So qualifying your input to being advisory and another data point to allow the chief exec to make a good decision is absolutely right. And if you don't believe the chief exec can make a good decision, then you shouldn't be on board. Mm. So it's it's a big shift. And I went back in as an exec role for one of my businesses in Reboot. For example, and then you have to switch back again to mm. making the decisions, and then I'm now not exactly you have to switch back again to coaching. So it, it, it is an interesting dynamic to get that right. We talk about what you might have hindered. I doubt you did. But <laughs> what about the added value? What are the specific areas you think you've been able to add? Not specific examples, but areas. A lot of successful growth in businesses relates to people normally. So getting the people structures right, there, making sure that you're selecting the right people as, as you grow. I certainly have opinions on, and hopefully they're valuable there. Yeah, I've got a general business experience now, and certainly in marketplaces, I can. there's quite a lot of pattern recognition goes goes on now. So I can say, actually, the challenge here is to build the platform so we can truly scale you know, next level, because otherwise, you know, the VC, for example, wouldn't be interested here or you know, the unit economics. Yeah, I spent quite a lot of time focusing on unit economics. As in every single business plan that probably you or I have ever seen always goes up rapidly towards the right, and it's either revenue, gross margin, or profit. Yeah, and you know, some of them do, but most of them don't. So most of the time I spend focusing on the gross margin per transaction, making sure we're not locking needless cost into that. Or if we are, making sure that we have a clear route to getting out of it. So that focusing on the unit economics there and also focusing on the ability that once we've got these unit economics right, that we can really, really scale fast. Yeah, and of course in the marketplace, you've got two sides. Yeah. So you've got a cost customer acquisition on both sides yeah. and possibly a lifetime value only on one side. Yeah. So you need to look at both sides. I don't do many marketplaces. I no. don't understand marketplaces. I don't understand consumers. No, and the dynamics are very different. So for example, Wiplan, where I was, which was not a huge success, the dynamics were very, very different to a hotel. A hotel is largely static and is always selling rooms in the future, whereas you know, a concert hall is entirely dependent on who's performing at that particular point in time. So the dynamics are very, very different um, in those two examples. Okay, as you might be aware, I put all my rules for engagement with entrepreneurs on my website to make it very open and transparent. What have you learned in the last 10 years? Huge amounts, (laughs) you're going to say. (laughs) Yes, I've learned, I hope, quite a bit along the way. The most important first message that I learned was actually John Bates's advice, you haven't got the Midas touch. So I think one of the challenges for any first-time angel is... You've got one data point, probably, where it's worked. You've just made quite a lot of money, and you slightly assume that you know whatever I touch next will also make quite a lot of money. And just a bit like the general population, if you ask them, you know, are you above average driver? Every single person is above average driver. Successful entrepreneurs probably have even higher levels of confidence, and they are absolutely above the average on business angel investing. And assuming that you are not above the average is probably a good idea <laughs> when you first launch. That's a so, great, great tip. So assuming you're going to need a portfolio, et cetera, I think is very valuable. The next one sounds really very obvious, but it's not you running it. And I think that's the challenge. And I see it in many angel pitches, actually, that you spend a lot of time, sorry, not you, but one spends a lot of time digging into the opportunity, digging into the marketplace, the dynamics, et cetera, and probably not enough time digging into the individuals because... It's not a matter of whether this is a good idea. It's whether this is a good idea that these people can execute against. 
And you can justify it that, you know, however they answer the question is ind- indicative of whether they're a good person to run it. But, you know, focusing a lot more time on, it's a cliche, but as with all cliches, it's there's a kernel of truth behind it, that working out that the balance of skill sets and the drive and the individuals in the team are really going to thrive this, I would make this option. But that takes thrive. time, doesn't it? It does. And also judging that from a single pitch is quite hard. I think it's it, impossible, isn't it? They're in a sales mode and most people can sell themselves for a period of time, but actually trying to work out more dispassionately about whether this person has, and I probably have slightly unusual criteria that I quite want someone who has, it's not necessarily academic ability, but it's a fast clock speed and an ability to analyze situations rapidly. Yeah, and they, they won't always be right, but at least they're, you know, they're moving fast on that. And that's quite difficult to pick up. People who've got a track record of success uh, up to this point, and normally, you know, it's normally a good indicator. And I'm not so, necessarily entrepreneurial, just no. in corporate life. And if they're not entrepreneurial, I was an entrepreneur before I set up Active. And without Adrian, I think I'd have really struggled because I was, you know, in the first three, four months of this, I was coming up with excuses about why this wasn't working. And actually, Adrian, I remember very distinctly saying, it doesn't matter whether you have an excuse or not, and it's not working. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and you, straight we, need to fix it. Yeah. Yes. And you're no longer reporting into your boss that if he agrees with you, it's all going to be okay and you'll still get promoted. It's, it doesn't matter whether anybody agrees with you or disagrees with you. If you're not making money, you'll go bust. Yes. So, and, and Adrian knew that instinctively and I didn't. And having someone who can coach an entrepreneur or mentor an entrepreneur who hasn't previously got startup experience, yeah, I think is really important. That can be on the board or it can be in the founding team. And I was very lucky that I actually had it in the founding team. Right. Okay. Any other tips? As we talked about potential gross margin, I want to be convinced that you've got potential to sell a lot. And I know this is frustrating as an entrepreneur. I used to get very annoyed that people used to come along and say, unless I can see I'm going to make 20x here, then I'm not going to invest in this business here because I need 20x to cover up all my failures here. And I'd be there going, well, the reason you have so many failures is you're always looking for 20x. They're bound to be risky, aren't they? That's how capitalism works. And I'm afraid I've come straight back to that now that even when I thought you know, this was a solid 3x opportunity, they still... You know, the founding team can get ill or... The competition can appear, yeah, they can have all that kind of thing. So, fraud, unless, bad debt. so yeah. unless you have that real sense of ability to scale here and protect yourself when you're scaling, which is why I know you invest in a lot of IP-rich businesses and you know, I have the same penchant here, but alongside marketplaces, you want a barrier to entry that means you can get a very, very significant business here. And you know, being crude about it, it's so it can bail out all the failures that I've made mm-hmm. as investments along the way. I'm very nervous if deal momentum, I'm still a sucker to it, but I've made investments in the past, which I won't name, but where there's been huge traction to get in on the deal and you sort of stop thinking and you're more concerned to actually lever yourself into the deal. Fear of missing out. Yeah, and it's a brilliant tip as an entrepreneur. If you can get a, that feeding frenzy, both with angels and VCs, your funding round is done pretty much. As soon as they switch from, you know, is this a good opportunity to can I get in on it? You know, that's the point at, you, at which you won. However, as an angel, I recognise that I'm susceptible to it and I try and steer away a bit or at least carry on doing the due diligence properly. And back out. And back out. Even if the crowd is in. Yeah. Okay. And that takes takes a bit of self-belief at times. Maybe a less obvious one is fellow investors. So I've had a couple of opportunities where just as you want the exec team to be aligned, having all the stakeholders aligned back to where you're trying to get to is important. And particularly one of the big clashes, occasionally at least, between angel investors is some are very, very reluctant to work with VCs, for example, along the way. And actually, I find VCs relatively easy to work with. I appreciate that's a slightly unfashionable thing to say, but you know they are behaving logically. 
in most cases, they are trying to optimize the return. You might disagree with their decision, but the mentality or the objective is, is very, very consistent. For angels, it's a more disparate group. You know, some people are running it because it's something that they are passionately interested in, or it's almost a hobby here. Some people are doing it as pure investment. Yeah. Some are doing it to try and find a job, actually. Yes. And some have a naive belief in the chances of success. And so, you know, one of the joys about working with Cambridge Angels is, broadly speaking, everybody who makes an investment through Cambridge Angels knows that they have a very significant chance of losing all the money. And it's not a surprise. Whereas I've had angels who've invested who didn't have that expertise. And it's caused the founder a lot of problems when there's been a down round or something has gone wrong. So your fellow investors is quite important. And then a, a very wise person from Cambridge Angels, actually, Raja, gave me some advice once, which is a brilliant piece of advice, and I wish I'd thought of it, which is if your investment thesis requires a change in behavior from the founders or the executive team, do not make it the investment. It just doesn't. Change of behavior. What's an example of that, do you think? This probably applies more to follow-ons than to the first round, that if the business has been run in a particular style or with a particular focus here, and you're requiring the chief exec or you know the top team to change the way they operate in order for you to justify making the follow-on investment, don't do it. Yeah, and as with all rules, that they have to be broken. But whenever I thought, actually, this is a real opportunity, if we could change this, it's no good me thinking that unless actually the chief exec is coming along and you genuinely believe that they're going to... So that's interesting. So that's investor-driven pivot, effectively, as opposed to exec team-driven pivot. Yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. So you're saying basically shareholders in that situation, in principle, are wrong. Not wrong because... They've chosen the wrong direction, but wrong because they're trying to impose it on an exec team that hasn't necessarily bought into it. Yes. And for example, if you're expecting the communications to dramatically improve in the business in order for it to be more effective or the style of management to change in any material way, however much the founder says that they want to do that, changing behaviours is actually quite a hard thing to mm. implement here. And you know, I, I agree with Raja, I think it's quite hard to rely on that. Right. If you're going to make a follow-on investment. Right, okay. So, Andy, have you got any more tips for angels? I guess the only, and this was a surprise to me, you know, and maybe it wouldn't be to other people, but it's obvious in retrospect, but your good businesses when you first start out, so you've made you know, 10 investments or, or whatever, here, your good businesses are likely to take, I think the average is now 14 years, but you know, certainly 10 years or so before they make you a return. And, but there's a rather depressing period over the next two, three, four years where the bad ones either can't raise further funds or you just give up. Yeah. So you, your losses are much more evident much earlier than your successes. So you kind of have to keep your nerve over that time period and keep your cash in reserve, because otherwise you're just going to run out of cash over that time period. So planning for that, I think, is... is, is the sort of trough of disillusionment yes, exactly. <laughs> used in a number of the fields. Yeah. And then there are an inordinately large number of people looking for money. So again, being quite focused on what you are looking for and what your edge is for want of a better term. So I run marketplaces and I've invested in marketplaces and that's kind of where I sit and I've got a bit of a technical background as well. So I, I invest in technology as well, but there are opportunities in every walk of life, you know, from running you know, new hotels or you know, leisure centers or you know, deep tech businesses. So actually working out where you're going to focus and building up the deal flow and the network and the contacts in order to be successful in that. And that's often you know, most Angel investors, I think, are entrepreneurs statistically. And so that's often where you've come from. So you often invest around that, where your deal flow is probably... That's probably not quite true. The most active angel investors are entrepreneurs, but there's a lot of passive money there as well. Yes, you're probably right. By number, they're probably... Uh, probably by quantum, I guess. They're probably... probably the active ones, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, are entrepreneurial. Okay. 
And tips for entrepreneurs. You must have, I mean, over the years, I don't know how many pictures you've seen, how many entrepreneurs you've spoken to. It must be hundreds, might be a thousand even. So give us some tips for the entrepreneur. I guess it's guidance a, a bit on what I'm looking for here. And this is going to be contradictory, so apologies for that. But I'm looking for absolutely exceptional people who I want to believe can take it through to exit. If I think they're good at running it for two, three years, with the possible exception of a technical founder, you bring in a general manager, chief exec or something with, with time. But if certainly if there's a chief exec who has got a general management background, I want to believe that person can take it through to the full distance because my track record of switching chief execs, et cetera, is not good. And I think a lot of VCs say the same thing as well. So I'm looking for people who are delusionally almost ambitious. You know, they've got a very strong sense of self-belief, but coupled with some self-awareness and self-questioning. So there's always that sort of cliche of strong opinions loosely held. Yeah, and I'm looking for that kind of schizophrenia that absolutely they can stand up in front of a team of two, 300 people and lead them over the parapet, if it were, but also step back and go, I don't know what to do in this circumstances. Can I get some advice? And that's quite a difficult thing to find in an individual, but most good entrepreneurs, I think, have got it. I have reasonably strong opinions on how I'm approached. I get, and I'm sure you do as well, I get approached by lots of people with strange business plans on LinkedIn, and it's an incredibly unproductive way for the entrepreneur to get a hold of me. I don't have time to go through them all. And also, to be frank, if that's the best way the entrepreneur can get to me, you know, one of the big challenges for any entrepreneur is you're always selling something to someone. You're selling to your staff to try and get new people. You're selling to customers, etc. And you know, a key asset to that is how you get the contact, whatever. And LinkedIn, I don't think, is the best way for... So I'm sure we have the same answer to this, but what is the best way of getting you? Through a contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so using your network to get to you. I know that discriminates to people who have good networks. But on the other hand, I also think good networks are very important for running the business. Mm. Uh, so it's discriminatory, but I'm afraid it's discrimination I stick with a bit on that. I think angels are different to VCs to some extent, but I think also the personal chemistry between the founder and the business angel is very important as well. I want to believe, maybe <laughs> delusional as well, that I can add some kind of value or I can work with this individual. And if the personal chemistry is not there, then I don't make the investment normally. I want to believe that this person can be someone that I can pick up the phone to here and and similarly vice versa, that will pick up the phone to me and say, I've got a problem here, can you help? Yeah, and it's not saying there are investments I've made where there are other people representing the company on the board. Yeah, and I don't want to interfere in that, but I do want to believe that that person is open to advice and is someone that I would enjoy working with. And that's self-indulgent, but I'm partly doing this. If you're just making investments for return, you shouldn't do angel investing. And so there's an element of personal preference. I just want to work with people that I like. Enjoy, yeah. The yeah. pint of beer test, I call it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even though I don't drink beer. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the other advice for entrepreneurs is we all see many, many deals. And I say no to an awful lot of very, very good deals. And so it's this kind of plea, please don't be offended if I say no. It is as much my fault as yours in that circumstance. But I have had people who have said, I've said no to, who have been very, very upset or feel betrayed by it, whatever. And I've also had situations, I'm sure you have as well, where people have thought I was investing, not because I said I was, but because they thought I looked enthusiastic in the pitch. Mm. They told other people that I'm interested in investing. And then when I back out, it potentially impacts all their other investors as well. So you know, the expectation that I will say no rather than yes is, is helpful in managing that dynamic. Yes. Any other tips? Yeah, well, groveling sycophancy and some free gifts as well. <laughs> <laughs> I like that as well. <laughs> Good, Andy. Well, I'm going to ask you a question which we haven't prepared for here. Right. I am about a decade older than you. What are you going to be doing when you get to my age? 
I, I'm rather impressed. I, I think actually about the time I retire or stop doing this, I'll probably have got quite good at it. So um, I think I'll probably carry on at angel investing. Part of me really, really wants to go back and set up a startup again. But a bit going back to our previous point, every driver thinks they're better than average. The stats are absolutely against older founders, and I'm aware of that. So certainly for consumer businesses, I think it's very rare to get a consumer-facing business. But the stats are pro-serial entrepreneurs. I so think, I where's think, this age, you know, experience thing? Where's the tip over? <laughs> is the I, one? I, I think where that goes is you get slightly more involved in a couple of startups, but you're working with a chief exec who's under 35, I suspect, for <laughs> consumer business. And it's it's my selfishness on that, that when I have gone back in an exec role, I'm not good enough to do it without worrying about it and working long hours. So I end up working evenings and weekends again, and there's, I definitely have a conflict with family life on and that. Exactly. You have three children under yeah. 10, are they? Or? Yeah, no, 310. And you, you do protect your family life well, don't you? I try. Yeah, I'm not sure my wife would agree. But I try quite hard to protect it well, yes. Andy, this has been a real pleasure. The audience and me have got so much from this. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be invited.